Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are in Galatians 5, Galatians 5, 25 and 26. And so as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, it should be a ba- uh, copy of God's Word in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you, for you to take home. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents. It's going to let you know how to find the book of Galatians. And then the large numbers are chapters of small numbers of verses. This morning we're in Galatians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. We're going to wrap up chapter 5 today. Let's, let's read this, read these couple of verses together. Paul writes, and we see this in some sense as an invitation. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now as we come into this and we, and we read this, we recognize that in some sense what Paul is writing and what he's saying to us is that living by the Spirit requires a will determined to follow and a heart inclined to love. It, deter- it, has, it, it, it requires a will determined to follow and a heart inclined to love. And so we catch ourselves at the intersection of those two things, and we begin to ask of ourselves and evaluate our lives, maybe the last week, maybe the last month, is my will determined to follow? Is my heart inclined to love? Have I seen myself in these two things? How do I see my response? How do I see my thoughts rolling through this process? And we begin to think, or I begin to think, anyway, as I look at these, and I remember that in 5, 19 through 21, Paul had this list of 15 outworkings of the desire of the flesh. And then in 5, 22 and 23, he had the nine fruits of the Spirit. Now when we consider the fruit of the Spirit, and we know it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we look at those things and we look at our last week, we look at our last month, and and, and there are things that we're just going to find ourselves more readily seeing in our lives, and there are going to be aspects of that that we look at and we think, Ah, uh, don't see a great deal of patience. Ah, uh, don't see a great deal of gentleness. Ah, uh, don't see a terrific amount of self-control. And then we read through the, the list of the 15, these, this desire of the flesh and all these various things that roll out, and, and we begin to hear this voice in our head that says, yeah, this is, this is you. This is what you do. This is what's in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then he just says, and things like these. And so we have this voice that that, that occurs in our head that looks at this invitation. And the temptation is to say, this invitation is not for me. This invitation for what it looks like to walk in in the Spirit, for what it looks like to live by the Spirit, is not really an invitation that I can accept. It's not really an invitation that that, that I can find real and true in my life. And I want to read a quote to you from Jen Wilkin. Listen to what she says. Speaking of God, Jen writes and he says, He knows me fully, every thought and every intention." Every perception and every judgment, every response to the world around me, no personality test required. He understands my biggest strengths and my besetting sins. Even the temptations I face are so known to him that he calls them common to man. 
apprehending with complete accuracy the best and worst of me. He is neither impressed nor horrified. He accepts me as I am because I am in Christ Jesus. See, there's this thing that happens to us in the middle of considering whether or not we are suitable to accept this invitation for what it looks like to live in the Spirit. And the thing that happens to us is we begin to evaluate how well we are doing. How well you are doing. How well we as a church are doing in manifesting the fruit of the Spirit versus living in the temptation and the fulfillment of the desire of the flesh. And in those moments we think that we're doing really well and we're doing awesome and God up in heaven is directing the angels doing this number. He's saying, look, here comes Jeremy, sing. He's doing really well. Here comes Matt, sing. Here comes Jeff, stop the song. Doesn't deserve a song to that unless it's a dirge. But when we come to this with a, Chris, with, with a Christocentric understanding that you and I are never made more acceptable or more appropriate before God on the basis of our efforts. You and I are only ever made appropriate and acceptable before God in so much as we find ourselves living fully in Christ. Listen, if this is you today, if you find yourself and you say, I don't have it all worked out, I am striving to place myself in submission to the Spirit. I want Jesus to increase in my life. I want me to decrease in my life. And I recognize I've not yet arrived. Then this is an invitation for you. It's an invitation for you to yield over in ever-increasing measure to the Spirit, the role and operation for directing the affairs of your life. It's an invitation to walk in lockstep with brothers and sisters in Christ and to militantly push back against the work and the deeds and the lies of an enemy who tells you this is you in sin and God wants nothing to do with you. This is the invitation that the Spirit extends to us, this gracious invitation and says to us, if we live by the Spirit and if you are in Christ, you are living in the Spirit. You see, Paul had told us back in chapter 3 in speaking to the Galatians who were being tempted and were being encouraged to give themselves to a full investment of the works of the law. He said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We have, in, in, in a sense, in this, I have this understanding, and he's telling them over and over again, the works of the flesh are never going to complete you. They're never going to fulfill you. The work of the Spirit is what has begun this good work in you, and the work of the Spirit is what will carry on this good work in you, because he, the Spirit, is who keeps you in Christ. Now, if you look back at chapter 5 and verses 16 and 18, he had told them, he said, walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So we come to this understanding that the Spirit has to play a central role in how we engage our lives. And if you don't have the Spirit, if you're not living in sensitivity to the Spirit, if you aren't being led and directed by the Spirit, and you're doing the best you can on your own, then you're living in rebellion to God. And it could be that one of the reasons you find yourself excelling in, the desire, in satisfying the desire of the flesh and not excelling in living out the fruit of the Spirit is because you're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to be righteous on your own. You're trying to be perceived as good 
on your own. You're trying to be perceived as successful on your own. You're trying to be righteous on your own merit. Let me just spell you some relief. You cannot be righteous in and of yourself. This should cause us this massive exhale of relief. We should feel the anxiety begin to lift off of us. The invitation here isn't to something impossible. It's something readily possible. It is something necessary, and it is available to us through Christ's sacrifice. I can think of two things just immediately that we have to have be true of us if we are going to live by the Spirit. And neither one of them are, 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 are just kind of overflowing with, good job. I mean, the first thing that came to mind when I began to think of what are prerequisite, what are requirements for us if we're going to live in the Spirit, and the first idea is that we need to be needy. We need to be needy. Now, we don't like the idea of neediness, but let me show you this picture of this. One of my children, the youngest one, every morning, every morning, what he does is he stumbles through the house like this without his glasses on, so he doesn't really know what's going on. And he makes his way into my bedroom and he turns around and he blindly feels on the wall and he turns up the light and he spins back around and then he walks at about this speed until he bumps into my bed and then he folds over. (laughs) And then he straightens up, he takes a couple of steps back, he quadruples his speed and he folds over and eventually he does this enough times that he ends up on top of the bed now once he's made it on top of the bed he begins to crawl and make his way to us he crawls up beside us he says let's get under the covers he pulls them over our head and there's silence and glee for a moment and then the conversation always goes like this I need cereal I need cereal. And it doesn't matter how much delay that we give him. It doesn't matter how much we put him off. Let's just watch a show. Let's just cuddle. Let's talk. Did you dream about anything? Everything always comes back around to, I need cereal. Now listen, y'all. He maybe could get in there and destroy our pantry getting cereal, but he recognizes that he is coming to the person who can fulfill the need that he has. He is coming to the source, and he is unwilling to relent. The constant refrain we hear from him until we give what he wants is, I need, I can't help you. So I need zero, man. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to come before him and say, I need your spirit. I don't want to live on my own. I don't want to live in my strengths. I don't want to live in my abilities. I don't want to live in the adulation and the praise of the people around me. I don't want to live on the merit of my successes. I need your spirit. And I have your spirit because of the work of Christ. Got to be needy. And we've got to have this recognition, this understanding that that more than just being needy, we have to recognize that you and I are leaky vessels. D.L. Moody said it this way. He says, the fact that we are leaky vessels and we have to keep right under the fountain all the time to keep full of Christ and so as to have a fresh supply. Spurgeon said it this way. He says, certain of our needs again are of this extraordinary kind. 
That if they were filled up tonight, they would be empty tomorrow morning. Some of our necessities are fresh every morning. This crop is a daily one. It springs up at every moment. The grace I had five minutes ago will not serve me now. Yesterday I may have possessed great love, great faith, great courage, great humility, great joy. But I need these today also. And none can give them to me but my Lord. You had a great patience under your last trial, yes. But the old patience, he says, is stale stuff. You and I are such leaky vessels that none but God can ever fill us. And when we are filled, none but God can keep us full. Yet so the promise stands. My God shall supply all of your need. All vessels shall be filled and shall be kept full. We need to recognize we're needy and we're leaky. So we come to the Lord on Monday. And we say, Lord, I need your spirit today. And at lunchtime on Monday when it rolls around, Lord, I need your spirit right now. And tomorrow morning when we wake up, we recognize that we have bled out, that we have leaked out the sufficiency of which we were depending upon God's spirit. And so we come to him again and we say, Lord, fill me up again with your spirit so that I might pour out in faithfulness to you. God's spirit is what leads us to manifest the fruit of the spirit. Amen? And we will do this in proportion to our dependence upon him. It'll be needy. And we've got to recognize that we are leaky. It says, if we live by the Spirit, and he, he, he turns, and, and Paul does this amazing thing. The ESV helps us to catch, capture this. Notice he says, let us, and then he's going to drop down again. He's going to say, let us again. So it's been you, it's been me, it's been I. But now he puts his arms around them as a group, and the ESV pulls us into this interpretation that says, let us. Now, what is he encouraging you to do? We're living in the Spirit, So let us keep in step with the Spirit. Paul positions this, and he paints this picture. Essentially, the Holy Spirit is there, and he is calling out the cadence of our progression. So he's calling out the cadence of our progression, saying left foot, right foot. He is telling us, this is where sure footing is. This is where sure footing is. This is how you follow the Spirit. A number of years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and for whatever reason, this particular pastor's conference always deals in guns. Used to deal in golf, moved away from that, it always deals in guns. And so we're out there, and we're at this gun range, and for whatever reason, uh, the, 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 the guy in charge of our group goes over to the range master and says, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And I just thought, this is never going to be cool. And and for whatever reason, this guy said, okay, I'll let you guys do it. And so we all get in a line, okay? So there's 20 of us, and there's three to five feet separating each of us. And we're all in a line, and we're all facing a berm this direction. So we all pull up, and he says, what you're going to do is I'm going to sound out, and you guys are going to walk and step with one another. And as you're walking towards this berm, you're going to fire. It's going to be really cool. I don't know why, even thinking about it now, I don't know why this was going to be cool. He said it was. We trusted him. He had a bigger gun always off safety and so we we did what he said should have been a sign and so we're there and he says okay draw and so we we had our guns up and and he says begin to walk and so we begin to walk and he says fire and so he's calling it out and we're all doing this and so we're taking steps and we're firing or walking towards this berm and it's just boom 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 and all of a sudden as we're walking One of the guys in our group, his gun jams. And what does he do in his gun jams? Does he keep walking? No, he does not keep walking. 
he stops and he begins to do this number, trying to get out, trying to clear the jam in his gun. We hadn't stopped. We're still walking. We're listening to the cadence of the range master. And what this guy does when he looks up and notices we're way ahead of him, what does he do? He pulls up. And he begins to fire. <laughs> and he begins to walk quickly. And all of a sudden, you begin to see Drill Sergeant Rangemaster lose his ever-loving mind. You see, when he failed to keep in step with the Spirit, when he failed to keep in step with the cadence being called out, he put all of our lives in jeopardy. He put all of our lives in jeopardy. But I want you to think of it from this perspective. When we were walking along, and the man to his left and the man to his right saw out of their peripheral vision their brother begin to fall behind, they didn't stop either. And because they didn't stop, they put all of our lives in jeopardy. Because we let our brother fall behind. This is why it's important that we recognize Paul doesn't say, Brett, keep in step with the Spirit. Jesse, keep in step with the Spirit. Robert, keep in step with the Spirit. Kalina, keep in step with the Spirit. He says, let us all keep in step with the Spirit. So when we begin to see our brothers or sisters fall behind, the Spirit would say, halt, stop. Because this is an imperative to all of us. We will persevere. We will stay healthy. We will stay on target and in step with the Spirit if we stay in step together. And we see how this looks. And we recognize the inherent difficulty of this. And if you've been in church any length of time, you've seen that this is a practical nightmare. But this is God's work. And if we are going to be faithful to obey, faithful to apply, and to receive the blessing of God's Spirit, we've got to pay attention to what it looks like when those in our number begin to fall behind. But Paul's going to turn and address this in chapter 6 and verse 1. And so I don't want to go there right now. But it's imperative that we recognize the importance of this us concept. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Look at his next, look at his next idea. It's this compound word in verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited. It's real positive. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. And he moves to this idea of, of negativity, let us not be conceited. It's this compound word. What it means is let us not engage in vain glory. Let us not be engaged in empty glory. So how do we do this? Now Paul has already been driving at this point. Look back at chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he says, You are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one, lure, <laughs> whoa, one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we come into this understanding that to be conceited, for us to be conceited, primarily means that there has been a failure to love 
someone in our number. Now we see corporately how this can take effect and how this can negatively impact a community. So let's just say that we happen to live in a town with a ton of churches. Is that a fair statement? Anybody live in Greenville? Raise your hand and say, I do. That's right, you live in a town with a ton of churches. And so if these churches take the approach of conceit, we're right, they're wrong. We're better than they are. You should come to my church. We're always out by 1145. That's just a real, that should be on a website somewhere They would be packed. You should come here because this. Don't, don't go to that place. They're known for this, that, and whatever. We begin to see how this idea of conceit fails to love other people. And we begin to see how this idea of conceit builds this insular mindset that is us versus them instead of us all against the enemy and the agents of darkness. Amen? So corporately, that's how it happens. We begin to think in uncharitable ways about other people who do things differently. Largely, this is why you tend to see churches of people who all look alike, who all have the same experiences and all have the same backgrounds. And that's true of us. Because when somebody has different experiences and different backgrounds, they find it difficult to integrate into the life of the fellowship. Education levels tend to be about this level. They all tend to be, you know, about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, so I feel tall. That's a joke. But all of our backgrounds, all of our worldviews, our political leanings, all these things tend to be pretty flat. Because it's difficult to be around people you disagree with. And we tend to think that people who disagree with us have to be wrong. And we're so focused on that that we fail to love them well. And so we see this is how churches break apart. This is how churches don't work well with one another because it's, it's difficult. We're always afraid they're going to take our members. If they take our members, then they'll have our members' money. If they have our members' money, then we won't be able to do that, 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 that. We see how conceit destroys friendships. We see how conceit destroys marriages, how it destroys families. Because it's captivated with the idea of not loving those around us, but primarily wanting to be satisfied and wanting to love myself. And it leads us to this egocentric mindset that says, I am the most important. What I say has to be right. Everybody else has to be wrong. And I'm unwilling to yield. It'll destroy us. It'll absolutely eat our lunch. It'll make us the most insular, unloving group of navel gazers that Greenville has ever experienced. Let us not become conceited because we recognize that love looks outward. Now John Stott had this idea that Stott says our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Our conduct towards others, how we engage the world around us is primarily determined by how we see ourselves. And so if we give ourselves to this idea of conceit, it's going to lead, Paul says, to provocation and envy. It's going to lead to provocation and envy. If we love ourselves most, we're going to go to people and we're going to say, hey, listen, what I say is right, what you say is wrong, the way I live is right, the way you live is wrong, the way I parse everything in life is right, and the way you parse everything in life is wrong. And what is that going to do to their worldview? How are they going to respond? 
I don't know about you, but I've not met a great number of people in 2020 or 2021 who respond well to such a, how would you say this, warm greeting. Hi, my name's Matt. I'm Pastor at Ridgecrest. I voted these ways. I made these decisions over the last year. How about you? That's just how I greet my mailman. Like, I don't know how y'all get down. But we recognize in the middle of these things that when we go to people and we have this view that I'm all right, you're all wrong, when we express these things to them and say, listen, you are wrong in all these various ways, what it does primarily in them is it provokes them to anger because they feel that you are attacking them at the base level of who they are instead of engaging and entering into a disagreement that says, I happen to disagree with you on this, but let me communicate this to you. It doesn't alter my ability to love you. Do you see how that's different? One looks outward out of a desire and a delight in serving those around us. The other one looks outward and only delights in changing opinions to align them to ourselves. One is a movement of service. The other one is a movement of provocation. He says, let us not be conceited provoking one another. Let us not be conceited envying one another. When I envy someone else, I look at the things that they're doing in their life, the things that they have in their life, the experiences that they have, their education, their hairstyle, or their lack of hair, whatever it happens to be. My son told me earlier, you should be bald. It makes you look older. I don't know what he was trying to say with that. (laughs) I don't know if I'm supposed to be envious of this vision of myself in his head or I'm supposed to feel insecure that I am balding a little bit in the back. I, I just don't know. I'm envious of somebody. I haven't figured it out yet. This is sin and sanctification and process. Even as I speak, I'm feeling convicted by this. I would stop and pray, but we're real close to the end. When we envy another, essentially we communicate, you don't deserve this. We communicate to them that you don't use well what you have. We're making a judgment call about how they engage in the stewardship. We're making a judgment call based upon the things God has introduced into their lives. And we're telling them, these things shouldn't be your things, primarily because I don't have something better. And we see how this destroys a partnership of churches. A partnership of churches. Our worship center isn't as large as yours. Our air conditioning doesn't fail as regularly as yours does. We don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this program or that program, and we pit programs and we use programs to vie for the hearts, the affections, and the attendance of people. And this is how we operate. And this is how churches in America largely operate. We want to offer something that no one else offers so that people will come here so that they'll know Jesus, but so that they'll also be here. And that creates envy. Because we look it around and essentially we're asking the question, what are people doing that is working? And if we can find something that people are doing that's working, that fits a theological grid, we should copy that. Because we want the success that they have. Y'all, that's envy. What's the approach? What's the approach for a church? The approach for a church is the same as the approach for an individual Christian. I need to be, you need to be, 
We need to be living by the Spirit. Our relative success or failure, whether or not we're able to pay off our debt quickly or slowly, whether or not we have to go to multiple services because people are packing in, none of those things metric success in the Lord's eyes. What metrics success in the Lord's eyes is the degree to which you and I would say, less of us, more of you. We will not be satisfied not being full of your spirit. We will not be satisfied making good, sound, wise choices. We will only be satisfied in so much as we find ourselves moving lockstep together, all of us, in line with the cadence of the spirit. This is the invitation he extends to us. This is the call he asks us to join him in. This idea that living by the Spirit requires a will determined to follow and a heart inclined to love. Let me pray for us. Father, you give us an opportunity to love you, to follow you. God, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you. God, I pray for any in here who are giving themselves to following you, but following you in their own strength, following you in their own ability, dealing with their sin in their own know-how out of their own willpower. God, that they would see in you a gracious invitation to come and to be made whole to be forgiven of their sins through the sacrificial death of Christ, forgiven and redeemed by the power of his blood, Jesus Christ who came, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who died on the cross, whom you raised up again. God, and you invite us all to come and to be made whole, to be forgiven, and to know Jesus. So God, our prayers for any in this hearing who do not know your son Jesus, that today they would come to know him. God, I pray for the believers in this room, people who are stuck, people who are frustrated, people who are discouraged and just hurting and broken. They need a word of encouragement for you. They need to accept this invitation. They need a fresh filling of your spirit. So God, by the power of your spirit at work in their heart, would you enliven their minds? Would you affect their emotions to draw them once again to yourself? God, we submit all these things to you and ask that you just continue to stir in our midst and stir in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.